Hey there, it's John from the Red Dice Diaries, and this time, spurred on by a recent call, I'm going to ask, do spreadsheets have a place amongst our RPG prep? We'll find out soon, after the music. Now, this episode was spurred on by the following call that I received from Jason Connolly of Nerds RPG Variety Cast, which is a great podcast. If you've not listened to it, go and check it out. Link in the description. But anyway, this is what Jason's message said. Hey, John, Jason here. Just want to comment on your recent money episode. Thought it was very good. Yeah, definitely the key is balancing between abstraction and spreadsheets you know because you don't want to play papers and paychecks now i've cut jason a little short there but that's the relevant part of the message i did answer the message in a preceding voicemail episode so you can check that out if you want to hear the full thing but it got me thinking to what extent is using spreadsheets or tools like that actually a problem now don't get me wrong i entirely agree with jason that you don't want to slow the session to a crawl in the middle of the actual game when you fire up your spreadsheet and you're inputting loads of figures and i can speak from personal experience on this i once played in a vampire the masquerade sabbat game ages ago i forget most of the details about it save that one of the rituals that the sabbat vampires do is they all share their blood in a huge ritual called the Valdry, which creates bonds of artificial loyalty between these maniacal kindred and i suppose i should say canines although they'll be on my back and it stops the whole sect from imploding basically now as i say i forget most of the details about this game save for the fact at one point we got invited to the pala grand which is a massive festival and a big part of that is this huge valdry that everyone there participates in to cement these weird artificial bonds of the faction together there must have been about 50 vampires there all told in the game based on the description there was half a dozen player characters and the rest were npcs now we i assumed at the time that when we got to the sort of voldry bit and there's basically the more voldries you get involved in you have like a little voldry rating to all the vampires and the higher the number you've got to that vampire determines how strong your bonds of loyalty are to them and what you're sacrificed for them and whatever whereas you've got a low number you couldn't give an f about them basically and the more you do it the more this number ticks up so like i say it's like a weird sort of magical through the blood artificially enforced loyalty but i assumed that when we did all of this because there were so many people involved the the ref the, the gm the st as it's called in vampire was back in the day was going to sort of hand wave that or just say like yeah you've got a couple of points to all the vampires over here and it'd just be a role play thing or we could all like move on with the interesting bit of this session but no what actually happened was the gm pulled out a laptop and had a spreadsheet with the player characters and the npcs down one side and also along the top like a little grid matrix and he then started making dozens and dozens of rolls and inputting these numbers so he could precisely track the voldry ratings of any vampire to any other vampire that was there and whilst yes that's fairly comprehensive and it would have enabled him to look up the stuff later it completely ground the session to a halt and instead of this palagran being this blood-soaked festival of majesty like it's supposed to be in the game fiction it basically turned into us twiddling our thumbs while the gm was typing in lots of numbers in a spreadsheet so i'm certainly not a big fan of that to be honest but 
following another recommendation that I think might have also been from Jason or from somebody else, I um, looked into my copy of Adventure at Conqueror King because that has a lot of slightly crunchier methods of dealing with like domains and stuff like that. And in my old school essentials campaign, Smoke and Snow at the moment, we're just starting to get to the stage where even if they're maybe not quite high enough level, strictly speaking, the player characters are starting to become pretty big movers and shakers in the setting. We've got Dave Hodgkinson's character, Quentin, who's like making inroads in the Thieves Guild, and he's soon going to be climbing the ranks of that, and he'll probably end up fairly near the top of that as long as nothing goes wrong, just because of his skill level. We've got Weimar Lone Grove, played by Johannes, who is basically become the Castellan of this small village that they helped found, and it's now become a sort of smallish town with a walled sort of gateway around it and a couple of towers. So I started to think about, oh, how am I going to actually represent these domains or whatever? Because I don't want it to be a massive thing that I'm shoving in the players' faces all the time. Because let's face it, the the main interesting thing about D and D, or in this case, old school essentials, is the going out, the doing the perilous adventure, getting great treasure, fighting monsters, interacting with NPCs, and stuff like that. But much in the same way, during our money episode, I talked about like day jobs and incomes. These things are a great background element that add a bit of extra detail, a bit of extra flavour, texture and depth to your campaign world. So it gives that illusion that the campaign world is ticking along and other things are going on in the background people are doing their day-to-day jobs collecting taxes working the land whatever it may be and it just gives that sort of verisimilitude and that feeling of a real world now obviously we know that it's an illusion and that nothing really happens unless the gm makes it happen when the player characters aren't there but by having things progress and move along it gives that impression and it makes it easier to buy in to this illusion that the campaign setting is a real living world so i've been looking through adventure conqueror king and there's a lot of tables in there for determining the various bits and pieces of a settlement you know how much revenue you get how many peasant families you have living on the land how much urban revenue you get how much you get from tax etc how much you pay to the church how many festivals you have to hold a year what the morale of your domain is, how that affects your monetary income if you're the person in charge of it, what sort of classification the domain is. Is it a wilderness domain, a borderlands domain, or a civilised domain? Are we talking about a more traditional domain or perhaps a settlement of some kind? And all of these things affect the population of people involved there, the, the market class which determines how many sort of goods you can get there, on what your percentage chance of getting like really expensive goods is so for instance if we market classes tend to go from six which is the worst up to one which is the best and if i look at the sort of stats i like threw together for new zealand the the sort of town that i mentioned we can see that that has a market class of five so it's not the worst but it's only a small town and a market class of five means that for goods of one gold piece or less, there's 30 units of that available per month in that that area before you've bought up everything that's available. For two to ten gold piece goods, there is a one unit available of it. For 11 to 100 gold piece goods, there is a 25% chance of a single unit being available. 
For goods that cost 101 to 1,000 gold pieces, there is a 10% chance of a unit of that being available. For goods that cost 1,001 to 10,000 gold pieces, there is only a 5% chance of a single unit of that item being available. And for anything that is over that, it will just not be available in that level of market. And obviously, the higher the class of market you get, the more units of common stuff there will be available and the more percentage chance there will be of you getting these rarer or more expensive items. And I really like that idea. You know, it's not something that's terribly difficult to track in a session. I'm not going to have to keep... All I need is these little figures in front of me, and if the player character's like, oh, well, yeah, I'm going to I'm gonna buy 60 10-foot poles, then I can look in my Old School Essentials book and see that a 10-foot long wooden pole costs one gold piece, and I can go, well... Actually, I'm afraid that there's only 30 of them available in the market at New Zealand. If they buy up those 30, there won't be any available until a month has passed and fresh stock has come in. Whereas if they say something like, oh, I want to buy a lance, which costs 120 gold pieces, I can say, oh, there's a 10% chance of there being a single lance available. Romedy percentile dice, and I've got the information there, and I don't have to worry about it. Now, because there's a lot of figures involved, obviously I don't really want to calculate these at the table side. So, giving into my sort of accounts payable clerk training, I've thrown together a quick spreadsheet that works out a lot of these details for me. And obviously this spreadsheet is not something I'm going to consult within the session, Aside from just like checking a few figures on it, I'm not going to be like entering new data into it and fiddling around with it during a session. I can just quickly glance at it on one of my monitors, which isn't a problem because all my games run online, and I can quickly use those figures as a sort of grounding element to sort of like determine what's going on, how much stuff's available, how much money people are making, stuff like that. And if there are any changes that need to be made to this data, I don't know, let's say the player characters accidentally burn half the village down and that has a bad effect on morale, unsurprisingly, I can make those changes at the end of the session as part of my prep without actually interrupting the session itself. So I think I've basically come to the conclusion that having a spreadsheet, a list of figures, however you choose to lay it down, whatever your poison of choice is, it can be very useful as long as it's not allowed to overshadow the fun bits of the game itself. As long as you're keeping that spreadsheet, that list, whatever, just for you as the GM to help you with your prep, then there really is no harm in using these more modern tools. You don't have to. You can go old school and manual. It's whatever floats your boat. But there's no harm in using tools to make your life as a GM just a little bit easier. After all, isn't that what this sort of thing was invented for in the first place? Anyway, if you've got any thoughts on using spreadsheets or other electronic tools in your games, let me know. I'd love to hear from you. We might feature your call in a future voicemail episode. If you want to get in touch, you can do so in a few different ways. You can leave us a voicemail message using either SpeakPipe or Anchor, link in the description down below this episode, or you can send us an email to rddrpgpodcast at gmail.com. Until we see you again, take care, stay safe, and whenever you're playing, have fun.